The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Before we, before we jump into the, the sermon for this morning as we continue through 1 Peter, I wanted to, to quickly address, obviously, um, the news and everything in our world the last 48 hours here in the U.S. has been dominated um, by the decision that was announced Friday morning, um, officially announcing the Supreme Court has overruled Roe versus Wade. And this is, uh, this is something that churches and Christians in particular have felt very passionate about for a long time. And I just want to preface this that regardless of where you stand on this issue, Wherever you are, you are welcome here, and we are so glad that you are here this morning. But if you're wondering, why do Christians feel so strongly about certain things? Why do we feel so strongly about this issue in particular? Well, we believe that for a few reasons. Psalm 139 says that God knits us together in our mother's womb. And so life doesn't just begin at a certain place, but in the very womb, God is there and God is present designing the life that is being created and formed. In Luke chapter one, actually, when Jesus's mother Mary goes and meets with Elizabeth, it says that the baby leapt within her womb, that even there that that child recognized the presence of God. Not only that, but we believe as Christians that every single person is made in the image of God. From young to old, whatever ethnicity, whatever background, however wealthy you are or poor you are, every single person is made in the image of God. And that believes that every single person is worthy of support, of dignity, and is of great value. And it's our view, and we have as a church, and it's our hope as we continue to go forward as a church, to be a church that supports life, as the saying goes, from womb to the tomb. Right in every single area of life. It's why we partner with organizations like Informed Choices here in our area, which not only has pregnancy resources for moms, but actually a lady in our church came and told me afterwards that it actually also provides care for those of women who have gone through and had adoptions. It provides counseling and resources to them, trying to care for people regardless of where they find themselves. It's why as a church we foster, we partner, excuse me, with an organization like Foster the City, recognizing the need for there to be more foster families and foster foster care in our area. It's why we partner with Compassion Center to do our safe parking program here in the back where we have transitory housing for people who have find themselves homeless and in need of a home. It's why, I don't know if you realize this or not, but at our day camp two weeks ago, our kids here at camp raised enough money for an organization called Help One Child, which sends foster kids away to a Christian camp. Our little kids raised enough money to send an entire cabin of kids away to camp for a week this August. It's why we care not just about what happens before kids are born, but we wanna support kids and their families in whatever situation they find themselves throughout all of their lives. If your social media has been anything like mine, this has been the topic the last 48 hours. I woke up Friday thinking the topic would be the NBA draft that happened Thursday night. It changed very quickly. And I don't know about you, but it seems as if it wasn't surprising to me because this is just the world we live in. But the discussion is just polarized, isn't it? It's polarized. And I want to challenge us as followers of Jesus to not fall bait into the traps that we see around us. Because according to everything that you see online, you're either one of two things. You either love babies and you hate women or you hate women but love babies. And it's one or the other. But the reality is this, as followers of Jesus, we believe that God loves all because God sent his son to die for every single person. Jesus loves the world. 
Now, what would it look like for us as Christians if instead of in this moment, we took this time not to try and win arguments against people? See, I, there's not a lot of people that, that we need to argue against, but what if instead of this time, we took this as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus with others? Not to try and win them to our political side or our position on one social view or another, but to highlight, hey, Jesus loves everyone regardless, and this is why this matters. And so my prayer for us as a church in these days ahead is likely all of us will have opportunities and conversations with people at work and in our neighborhoods and with our families that agree and lots that disagree probably with how you think about this issue. May we be those who are the first and quickest to point people to Jesus, not just our positions on it. So let me pray for us as we open God's word. God, we do thank you. We thank you for, for your mercy that was shown this last week. And we do thank you that, that hopefully this will mean more lives. And we rejoice in that because we know you are a God who loves everyone. And this is your desires for all to come into fullness of life and health. God, would you be with us as followers of Jesus in this tough complex, in this navigating world with so much complexity? Help us to navigate these waters, ultimately always pointing people to you and the hope that we have in Jesus, no matter where we find ourselves or people find ourselves in the world. God, we ask that now as we open your word, that you would speak to our hearts today and that you would be present as we gather. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open them up this morning to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, we are now a big three, three weeks into our summer series as we're walking through the book of 1 Peter, um, and we're going to start this morning in chapter 1, verse 22. Well, it was about a month ago, it was a few weeks before our day camp, which if you weren't here the last two Sundays in person, you missed it because we had like a surfer shack over here and a giant wave enveloping our band cage over here. It was, it was the theme of our day camp this year was making waves. So it was all things think surfer, Hawaiian themed, it was everything here. And for me this year, I had to make sure that I was dressed up in costume because I actually got to be on stage telling the Bible story a couple of the days to the kids. And so I found myself at the store right before day camp, and I realized that I didn't have a Hawaiian shirt. And so I texted Shawnee, our kids' ministry director, I texted her just to make sure. I said, hey, do I need a Hawaiian shirt for, for camp next week? This is her exact reply. Day camp, Sunday morning, weddings, funerals, all of it. <laughs> right? Because the reality is this, and I, I laughed and, and I talked about it with other people afterwards. See, having Hawaiian shirts is not just if you're from California. It's not just like I have one, but it's which, which section of my whole wardrobe that's designated to Hawaiian shirts do I choose from? Some people today got the memo to wear a Hawaiian shirt. No one had to instruct you. I hate to break it to you, but if you go to other places of the country and you wear a Hawaiian shirt somewhere, people will be like, what, what's the occasion? Like, why, why are you dressed up in costume like this? It is just a, an, a weird thing too, whereas here, it's totally normal. It's one of those unique signs that you're from California or you live in California if you have a whole section of your wardrobe. I was, uh, I was talking to someone this past week who had just gotten back from the East Coast. They were in um, DC and, and Pennsylvania area for about a week and a half. And they told me, they were like, it was crazy. The whole time, over like 10 days there, I think I saw two Teslas. Two Teslas. And I'm like, well, in California, you leave your house, the first two cars you see are Teslas, 
right? It's a sign that you're in California when you see it. And if you've never lived or never really been much outside of California, there are certain kind of unique things that stand out that say, yes, this is where I live. This is where I am from. In a similar way, as followers of Jesus, as Christians, there should be certain signs in our life that are evidence to the fact that we are Christians, Signs, things within our lives that say, yes, I have been received this new life. I am following after Jesus. There should be signs of that in the world in which we live. And this morning, as we walk through this passage together, we're going to see three signs of the gospel that Peter highlights here that should be true for every single one of us who are followers of Jesus this morning. The first is found in verse 22. It says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The first sign of the gospel in our lives is that the gospel leads to genuine love. The gospel leads to genuine love in our lives. He has two different words there to describe love. First, this brotherly love. And then secondly, this earnest, love one another earnestly from the pure heart. The focus here is actually unique. Most of the book of 1 Peter, as we've talked about and we'll see going forward, is on Christians' relationships with this world, right? And they, the Christians here and we now find ourselves in a world that doesn't believe and doesn't honor God. And it's how do we represent him in this kind of world? This passage is actually talking about within the church itself. That's this brotherly love, this love that characterizes his focus right here is on internal relationships, And what Peter is saying is he picks up on so many biblical themes, including certainly the teaching of Jesus himself, is that if the church is to be known for just one thing, it should be known for our love. If the church is to be known for just one thing, we should be known for our love. And this is why in chapter two, he he highlights these obstacles to finding love in the body of Christ. In chapter two, verse one, he says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. What he's saying is when these things are present within the body of Christ, true love cannot exist. They they are polar opposites from each other. These ideas of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, some translations just generally translate it wickedness. This idea of being disingenuous, of carrying around a sense of pretense or entitlement towards others. He has this idea of don't be envious towards one another. See, love is desiring the best for the other person. Envy is desiring the best for myself, regardless of how it affects the other person. Oftentimes with their negative outcome in advance, it pushes us forward. He's saying that can't exist where love exists. Slander, not just unloving speech, but falsehood and talking down and disparaging others. He's like, you can't talk bad about people and actually love them. Those two things cannot coexist. He's saying those things should be put aside, put away from you as the body of Christ. And instead, what you should be known as is this brotherly love, this love for one another. So what is the church known for in today's world? If we're to be known for one thing and that's our love, what are we actually known for? Well, if you read much or there's lots of studies that have done lots of extensive interviews of people and their impressions of Christianity, their impressions of churches, there's kind of a few themes that that tend to come up quite regularly for people's impressions when they would talk about church or about Christians. They're not necessarily positive either. The first often comes up as hypocritical. They see us as just a bunch of people who, act, who are like put this face forward and don't follow it at all. 
They see our sin sometimes of pride, our lack of humility, of trying to look one way, but denying that every single one of us has issues and sin and ongoing struggles in our life. They view us as just hypocrites and love can't exist in the absence of truth. As Christians, we need to be honest about our shortcomings. It's not bad to tell someone, yeah, I don't have it all together. It's unloving to pretend that we do. And our world looks so often at Christians as just being hypocritical. The next thing that so many times people view Christians in the church is just wanting to accumulate power and prestige. They're just trying to accumulate power and control over people. This is especially seen in the today's world, especially within the last six to 10 years with political power. They're saying, oh, the church, that's just this subset of Christians. That's just this group who tries to get these type of people voted to these certain offices. They view the church as just trying to accumulate political power. Now, let me make sure to say this. There's nothing certainly wrong at all with voting. Every, I think every person should. There's nothing at all if you're feeling pulled to it to running for a political office. We need Christians in every single area of life. Politics, business, finance, in tech, construction, police, everywhere. That's a good thing. So I'm not at all saying that that is a bad thing to spend time doing. But the reality is this, so often that politics has been pulled in to replace God as the number one goal of Christians. And we need to remind ourselves that as followers of Jesus, we do not serve the donkey or the elephant. We serve the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We serve the lion of Judah, not some political party. We cannot allow ourselves to be known just for something else rather than for Jesus. A third thing that so often the church is known for is being judgmental towards others. Judgmental. We need to stop seeing people that we disagree with or that don't see the same things as we do as positions to be argued, but as people to be loved. And so often people have this view because of how our interactions with them are. Now, I don't know about you. I've met a lot of people. I, I, maybe if this is true of you, please come introduce yourself to me after the service. But I have never met someone who's been argued into faith in Jesus. Right? I've never met someone who was like, you know, I used to not be a Christian, but then they just yelled at me so much that I was like, I need this in my life. Please tell me more. Right? But I've met a lot of people, especially adults who have come to faith who have said, you know what? I wasn't, I didn't want anything to do with it, but it was so-and-so's person or this group of people who just continued to show me love and kindness and grace, who showed up in my hard moments, who loved me. And that's what drew me ultimately to believe in Jesus. But so much of the time, Christians are just known for judging and being rude and yelling at people and not for expressing the love of Christ to others. See, the reality is lots of people aren't judging the church by this way just because it's what they perceive in the media or just some thoughts that they randomly have. A lot of people are judging the church this way based on their own past experiences within the church. I've told you this before, but in the Bay Area here, we live in the most de-churched area in the United States, meaning that there is a very, very, the highest percentage in the U.S. of people who at one time were a part of some church who no longer attend. And so most people who are not going to church right now have some experience in their life of what church was, but the problem is for so many, they experienced everything in the church but love. They experienced everything but them. And a lot of people, perhaps even some of you here today, have not experienced love within the body of Christ. You've experienced shame, rejection, guilt. 
You've experienced all these things that we're told to put away that Jesus says, and Peter's saying, no, 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 be known for your love, not for all of these other things. And if you're here this morning and you've been shamed or guilted at church, you haven't experienced this love that Jesus has for us at church, I just want to apologize for that experience that was done to you. That does not represent Jesus. That is not who he's called the church to be. And I'm thankful if you're here today that you are here. And I want you to know that is not our goal at all is to treat you that way, but to show you this love that Jesus calls every single one of us to. See, how do we change people's perceptions about the church? I think the only way to really do it is through each of us engaging in loving relationships where God has placed us. It's not something that just one of us here this morning can be like, I got it, I'm gonna solve it. I'm gonna go love people. You all keep living the way you are. No, it's every single person needs to lead the way in loving others. And it has to start with how we treat each other with inside the body of Christ. So what Peter is saying here is our witness to the outside world starts with our love for each other inside the church. Our witness to the outside world starts with how we love each other inside the church. Because if people show up, which they do every single Sunday, if they show up to this place for the first time, are they experiencing this kind of love that Peter talks about in our relationships here with each other? Or are they experiencing something else? See, if the church is to be known for just one thing, we should be known for our love. And that's this love that we have. Why? We love because God has loved us. When we've experienced the love of God the Father towards us, it allows us to freely love one another, no matter where they come from, no matter their backgrounds. And it's that kind of love that should describe the church today. Verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The second sign of the gospel in our lives is the gospel brings eternal life. The gospel brings eternal life. It brings permanent change, eternal life into our hearts and into our lives. He says there in verse 23, since you have been born again, he's used this phrase already, this newness of life that we have that's only found in what God can bring to us. And then he says, not because of perishable seed, but because of imperishable. This is a favorite expression of Peter's. This is the third time we've seen it. We saw it in verse four, and again in verse 18, contrasting the, the smallness, the, the, limit, the limited world that we have versus the unlimited, the permanent area that God gives us, imperishable versus perishable. And he says here that this, this seed, the perishable seed, but of imperishable. See, seed often refers in scripture to human offspring, those that will come after us. And he's, he's understanding, yes, we all will physically die, but in Jesus, we all have a permanence and eternal life. And he's also using it as a double play here with what will come to follow this idea of seed, not only referring to human life, but to plants as well with this illustration that he pulls in from the grass. The focus here on these verses, on this passage here, is on the permanence of the gospel, the gospel would mean the good news of what Jesus has done for you, the permanent impact and change that that makes in the life of someone who believes in it. 
We see the expression three times, the word, the word of God, the word of the Lord, and this word. It's not referring specifically just to Jesus as it has in other passages. But here what he's saying is this word of truth, the truth of the gospel that was come and was taught and was conveyed to you. And he picks it up again in verse 25. This is the word, excuse me, this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now, it's interesting, sometimes a little bit is missed, and we don't quite see how, how clever Peter is being here. Good news literally means the gospel. That's the word. That's what it comes from, all right? Preached, what he says here, this word literally means to proclaim the gospel. It's the exact same word as good news, just with a different ending. And so literally what Peter is saying, this word is the gospel that was gospeled to you. He's saying it's all about the permanence of the gospel and the impact that it has in our lives. And to help them understand this permanent change that God brings, he uses this quote from Isaiah chapter 40 about flesh being like grass. And in the original context in Isaiah 40, it was when Israel was about to be taken away into exile, removed from the land. And and that prophet Isaiah was writing to remind them that, hey, even though you may not see it, even though it may look hard, God is a God who is faithful to his promises. And you may see the grass die, you may see the flower fail, but God is not like that. And for he was, the prophet was encouraging Israel that God would be and will fulfill his promises to them. And as those who live here in California, this illustration of grass and how quick it falls and dies is very easy for us to understand, right? Israel, the place in which the Bible was written and this this occurs, looks a lot like this area of California. The climate is very similar and the geography is very similar to this area, very rolling hills, very similar climate. Now, I joked um, with people when we moved here this this week, actually, I think it's Friday, whenever July 1st is. It's crazy. It's already July this week, isn't it? But whenever July 1st, which I think is Friday, marks one year since my family and I moved here to Morgan Hill. And when we moved here, we joked with people because when we visited, we visited the church twice before we moved here. We visited in March and April. And we were like, Morgan Hill, what a green, luscious place is Morgan Hill. <laughs> In fact, I think one of the times we were here, it rains. We're like, oh, it rains here in Morgan Hill. Lovely. The drought in California just doesn't include more. It rains here, right? No, we, we knew what it was like. We visited California during the summer before, right? But, but it's that idea that, oh, it's so nice and green. And then you get to 100 degrees for five straight days and everything's dead, including the water, the lawn in my front yard that I do water. That's dying too, right? It's like everything dies. It withers up just like that. And what Peter is saying is, yes, the grass may do that. It may wither, it will fade. But the change that God brings in your life, it won't. It lasts. It's permanent. The gospel brings permanent change in our lives because we know that God is faithful to his promises. See, life in Jesus is not just this new phase that we are brought into, but this permanent change in our hearts and in our lives. See, it's the problem that so often happens with dieting. Now, I am by no means a dietitian or a health person, whatever you call them, but I've read online so I can say something about it, right? So, um, but the problem is you read studies about it and say so often with diets, it's like this phase where I'm gonna do one thing and then what so often happens is like over 80% of people just gain, if not gain more weight back because their healthy eating or whatever it was was just a specific phase of their life. It wasn't an actual thing that brought permanent change to them. What we need to think of the gospel is not just another phase of our life, but it is now our life always and going forward. 
In fact, I don't know about you, and maybe especially if you came to faith later in life, you've heard this said to you, but I know several people who, when they came to faith, they had their family, their parents, their siblings say, oh, you're just going through a religious phase, right? This is your Jesus phase of life, meaning what? From their perspective, yeah, okay, in in three months and six months, you'll get bored with this and you'll move on to something else. Now, the people that I know who that was told to are following Jesus now decades later, showing that this, this is not just a phase. When you believe in Jesus, it's not your spiritual phase, your religious phase, but it's a permanent and ongoing change for the rest of your life. The gospel brings eternal life. The gospel changes everything. It's the only thing that will bring lasting change in our lives. When we seek after change in our lives from everything else, it will maybe give us pleasure. It will bring us happiness It will give us some moments of things for a phase, but the only thing that brings this lasting newness of life that all of us so need is this good news of what Jesus has done for us. Chapter two, verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The third sign of the gospel in our lives is the gospel produces changed desires. The gospel produces changed desires within us. The command, the imperative here in this passage is found in verse two, to long for pure spiritual milk. Long for pure spiritual milk. Now, in two places in the New Testament, Christians are kind of looked down on for milk, right? There's two passages that talk about move on from milk to like meat and things that are hearty. And sometimes we carry that over to here. This is not at all a negative thing that Peter is saying, but he's using it as an illustration. Don't miss the first part. Like newborn infants long for spiritual milk. And if you miss that first part, you miss it all. So as newborn infants, so what do babies do? Their first I don't know, six months of life. What do babies do? They sleep, they eat, they poop, and they cry. And that's about it. And they do all of those at all times of the day, right? It's not like, all right, good night, little buddy. We'll see you in 12 hours. Yeah, you'll see him in like 12 minutes when he decided he didn't get enough, right? Like babies don't have a problem communicating their need, why they are longing for certain things. And actually, we haven't announced this publicly, although we've posted on social media, but my wife and I are about to enter this phase of our life again. We're expecting baby number two to come in September of this year to our family. And I'm at the point right now where it's like, okay, it's coming. Can I stock up sleep, please? Like, is there a way to put sleep away in a bank so I can pull on it? Because, man, if you've been a parent, especially for those of you who are young parents, you know, man, there's like those few months where you're just like, this kid always needs me. Like no one taught for them just to scream at the top of their lungs when they're hungry. But man, this kid has learned it perfect. Why they have this intense longing, this intense craving for it. What what Peter is saying is just as a newborn infant has that craving, that longing for milk, so too when we experience this newness of life in Jesus, should we desire and crave the things that God has for us. The things of Jesus and what he can do in our lives. What he's saying is the gospel produces in us an innate desire for more of God. 
The gospel in your lives, when it's been received, produces in you an innate desire to have more of God, more of Jesus, more of this spiritual milk, more of his word, more of his goodness, more of his spirit in your life, that you want more of him and less of you in your life. See, too often, we think of Christianity as, are you inside the fence or outside the fence? Right? We, we think of it as like, well, well have, have I done this? Am I, am I in or out? You know, too often when we talk about if we're Christians, we talk about like the kid who just wants to make sure they don't fail their class in school. We're like, have I, have I just done enough to get into heaven? And sometimes we think that that's, that's what Christianity is about. But perhaps a better question is this, where are you headed in your life? What is the direction? What is the focus? What are the desires of your heart? And that can often help discern it. See, too often when we're asked, the question, how do you know you're a Christian? Sometimes we're like, well, I, I prayed a prayer back however many years ago. You know, for me, it was like, oh, 30-something years ago, I prayed a prayer. And the reality is, yes, yes, I did pray a prayer. And there is a moment where you place your faith and trust in Jesus. There is a moment that you become part of the family of God. But perhaps a better question or a better answer when someone says, how do you know you're a Christian? Is this, well, I know I'm a Christian because I see the Holy Spirit convicting me of sin in my life that apart from his work, I would have never felt conviction of. I know that I'm a Christian because each and every day I'm seeing this desire to want more of God, to have Jesus reflected more and more in my life because those are signs of this changed desire in our hearts. And so when the Bible calls us to Christianity, it's not calling us just to make a decision and live how we want, but it's changing the trajectory of our lives and our desire after him. And look at verse three. This is why this is so important. This is why this is so necessary. Verse three, if, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, you get this changed desire for only one thing. If you have actually indeed tasted that the Lord is good. A desire for God comes from an experience of the goodness of God. Desire for God comes from our previous experience of the goodness of God. And what Peter is saying is, listen, if you get a glimpse of God's grace, mercy, and goodness in your life, you will not be able to say, oh, well, that's good. I don't need anything more. No, it will have such an effect on you to say, I, I need more. It will create a longing for you in your life that you're not happy with just one little taste, one little glimpse of God's goodness, but it's this desire for more and more in your life. As I was thinking of it this last week, it reminded me of an old advertising slogan. You remember Lay's potato chips? I don't, does anyone really eat these without delicious French onion dip or something? I don't know. I don't, I'm more a chips and salsa guy myself, but you know they didn't come up with a slogan. What's the slogan when you open a box of Lay's or bag of Lay's and you eat your chip? What's the slogan? Bet you can't eat just one, right? Because it's that salty, that crunchy. You're like, ooh, ooh, I need more. I need more in my life. No one takes one potato chip except for me right now because I need to keep talking. No one takes one potato chip and thinks, oh, I'm fine. I don't need more. No, it's, it's I want more. I want more of that. It's the idea that once you've had a taste of it, you want more. When we've experienced the true goodness, the true mercy, the true grace of God in our lives, it changes us because we are so radically and profoundly changed that we say, I want more. I want more of what God has for me. I want more of what he can do in my life. If you have tasted God's goodness, you will desire more of him. It's not that you're perfect. If you think you're perfect, well, 
You're not. Hate to break it to you. None of us in here are perfect. It's not that we're perfect or that we get it right all of the time, but there's a desire in your heart increasingly to honor, to worship, to know God. There's a grief over your sin and a wanting to turn from your sin and honor Jesus more and more every single day in your life. That's, a ch- that's the change brought about by only the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then we need to ask ourselves this question. If there's no longing, if there's no desire, if there's no craving for God in our lives, have we really experienced his goodness? See, sometimes it's easy just to be like, oh yeah, I'm a Christian because I prayed a prayer a long time ago and our life has never changed at all. We've just done what we've wanted. We've not submitted any area of our life to Jesus. We just think like, oh, it's a thing I made so that when I die, I go to heaven someday. But the reality is, if we've truly tasted the goodness of God, we will follow him. It will change us to the core. And if you don't have this desire, if there's no longing in your heart to follow after God, the invitation's open to you today to experience the goodness of God, to experience his grace, his mercy, his love. A God that loved you so much, he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And then proving that he is God, defeated death, that you can have this newness of life from him. And when you experience this kind of grace, this goodness, that as we sang about this morning, none of us deserve. When you've truly experienced this, it will result in wanting more of him. And no matter where you find yourself, no matter how you walked in this morning, this goodness of God is offered to every single one of us, the salvation that can only be found in Jesus. So these are signs of the gospel that, Paul, that Peter says should be present in our lives. This genuine love that characterizes our relationships with one another. This permanent change that's brought about and this changed desire in our lives. For a lot of us this morning, we have been Christians for a long time. My, what I've been praying for myself this week as I've really wrestled with these last two verses is I've been praying, God, would you help me crave it more? Would you increase the longing in my life? I don't know about you, but the longer I walk with God, I go through seasons where I don't really crave it quite as much, where I kind of tend to think to myself, oh, I'm fine. I go through drier seasons. And so my prayer, and I would challenge you to pray that same thing this week. God, would you increase this longing? Would you increase this desire in my heart to want more of you, more of what you would have for me to represent you better in this world? Would you increase my desire for this pure spiritual milk? God, we thank you for the change that you've brought about in our lives for one reason alone. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that the gospel is indeed good news for everyone. God, we pray that these signs of the gospel would be evident in our lives. That God, this love that, that should permeate the body of Christ would permeate our lives, would permeate, permeate this church. That this eternal life would be seen in our hearts, not just for a phase, but ongoing for all of our lives. And God, that you would increase our desire for more of you. God, that you would be greater honored and exalted in our lives and through that be greater honored and glorified in our worlds. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.